Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone, today we will start a series of talks about an area that is uh, very important for, for all schools, I think, that is about inclusion. But what, what is that actually? And to my help, I have, uh, I think, the, the two best persons in the world in the area and two persons that have meant a lot for, for myself in my development and that I have learned so much from during all, all the years I've been working with this. And I would like to welcome John Hattie and David Mitchell. Hi, Kenneth. Good, Hi. good to talk on such an important topic. Yeah. And in, in yeah. Sweden, you're both quite well known. I think if you're becoming a special education teacher or a teacher, you will have read something from you. So I think a lot of people know of you. Uh, yeah, I think we're just, just get started. So this first uh, talk or inclusion talk number one, it's quite good to know what is inclusion? What does it mean, actually? Many people talk about inclusion, inclusion, evidence-based inclusion strategies. And in Sweden, it's a, a debate sometimes, should we have inclusion or should we not have it? But... I'm not sure that people that debate it know what they are discussing. So that is a challenge. So, so what, what, what does inclusion mean for you? Let's, anyone, we can let David start. Well, I'm going to take a long view. Yeah, um, fine. You know, Go I've, for been it. Looking at, I've been looking at how our species has evolved um, right from the Big Bang. And... Um, for many millions of years, we were hunter-gatherers. And one of the features of hunter-gatherers was that they were egalitarian. They were had a very level society. That when they went hunting, somebody would be leading that, but generally they shared the outcomes of the hunting. But then some bright spark discovered the idea of agriculture and they domesticated animals and found out about crops like maize and, and uh, barley and so on. And what happened then was that some of those farmers developed surpluses. And what happened? They became richer. And then they acquired more land. They became richer still. So we, in the agriculture age, we became hierarchical. And that continued. And has continued, I think, right up until very near the present day, where we have hierarchical societies. We tend to divide people um, into 
more able, less able, richer, poorer, one culture, another culture. So we have that as a as a as an issue. So that that's my beginning point. We have inherited a hierarchical approach to our society. Yeah. And Jon, I would add to that. Sure. My struggle with inclusion is that it means so many different things to so many different people. Um, in one sense, inclusion is a way of thinking. Yeah. It's um, it's a way of thinking that we want everyone in our school community, in our case, they want to be valued, they want to be supported, they want to be participatory. Uh, we want them to have the maximum learning, development, um, as possible. And it, the second part which relates to that is it comes to a culture that comes from that. And that in culture is one where all, and all with a capital A, and all means all, um, have these kind of opportunities, these obligations to uh, make sure that everyone is included in the school. But where the problem comes, I think, um, Kenneth and David, is when we then operationalize that, we move to structures. And we talk about whether all students should be in the regular school or not. And we're both old enough, David, to remember that when this all started, the concept was least restrictive environment. It's now turned into an equity argument that there is an obligation that every student should be in a similar environment to all other students. And I think this is where we've got into troubles, is yeah. that we've mixed up the uh, implementation and, the, and sometimes the strategies with the philosophy. Yeah. And so where you say, David, that we now have a situation where we, we don't have that kind of egalitarian, you're hinting to me at the philosophy that we, we need to find ways that every student, no matter what they come with, what their prior learning is, what their prior abilities are, what their prior dispositions are, they deserve that year's growth for a year's input, but maybe not necessarily in the same context as everyone else. And that's where I struggle because um, mm -hmm. I yeah so that's my dilemma. Interested in your reaction to that one, David? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I'd like to um, use an analogy here. And if you hold up your hand, perhaps I could ask you all to hold, yeah. hold up your hand. And if we look at our hand as representing the diversity of children in our classrooms, yeah. you know there are some who come with um, high ability and low ability. There are some who come from different cultures. There are some who have a different gender identity. Um, there are a variety of children. And then I've put my glove on. So if we think of that being the variety, the diversity of children, and I've put my glove on, what do you think the glove represents? The glove is inclusive education. And what is a brief definition of inclusive education for me, it is education that fits, like my glove, fitting the diversity of children. That's the starting point. We have to find ways of adapting our teaching, adapting our curriculum, adapting our assessment, and all sorts of things to do with our schools so that they fit the diversity of children. Yeah. 
I totally agree on that. And that can be sort of the philosophy. And then you could be doing that in, in a number of contexts based on what needs every kid have. I mean, in Sweden, it's quite common that they think that uh, inclusive education inclusion means that uh, all the kids are in the same room. It could be inclusion. It may be exclusion. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I like your yes, sort of the, it's 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 very visible to understand inclusive education that way. We should, we should call it the uh, Michael Jackson theory of inclusion. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But just, just on that point, now, you, you then get it. You then switched from what David was saying about finding a way that you know all kids can fit so we could maximize. Yeah. Talk kids should be in the same classroom. David, what's your jump there? Because that's the biggest, most critical step um, in, in my thinking about this is that jump from the philosophy of inclusion, which I think we'd all agree with, yeah. to how you do it. How should you do it, David? Well, let me take a, a couple of examples, one example. Yeah. Um, let's imagine that we have a, a classroom. We'll, I'll take two classrooms, one with um, young children and another one with older children. And we have a whole diversity of children in that classroom. Then we, as the teacher, we divide them into groups, which is a good idea because we need to have small group teaching um, and interaction for learning about particular subjects. Now, the question then becomes, how do we divide those groups? There are two choices. One is that we have um, ability-based groups. So we have able, very able learners in one group and the less able learners in, in, in a other group. The other, that's the first choice, and it's a tempting choice. But the second choice is the one that I'm favoring, and that is that we have mixed ability groups. Mixed ability with our whole diversity represented in those groups as far as possible. And then we come to the issue, which I think is the heart of your question. How do we teach those children in those mixed ability groups? And I use the approach called the, or I call it the jigsaw approach. So if we imagine a jigsaw, every person has a piece of the jigsaw, which they can put into make the whole. That's the notion of the jigsaw. In a classroom, <clears throat> we could have, for example, with young children, we could have um, a mural, children painting a mural, and various children in that group, all of the children in that group, would have different responsibilities for painting different parts of that mural. So we're collectively engaging in a learning activity. And some of the outcomes would be very capable drawings, say they're drawing a, uh, animals in a forest, it would be very capable, very technically proficient. Others would be much less capable, but nevertheless representing, say, a lion. That's yeah. with the junior children. So it's the jigsaw approach with ju junior children. Let's take an older group um, where the topic is, say, the ecology of animals. 
and there we can have a group. And some of the children may decide to represent that topic with drawings. Other children might decide to represent that topic by doing um, a rap, music, getting music. Other children may be able to go into Google and where whatever references are available and understand the science behind ecology. But they are all studying ecology and representing that learning in different ways, but coming together and integrating those to make a whole so that, that group, each group could then make a presentation to the classroom um, about their findings about the ecology of animals and those different um, interests and skills would be represented in that presentation. So those are just two examples, I think, of the minute-by-minute -minute inclusive education in a classroom. David, can I um, push you a little bit here? Like, there's two meta-analyses, two groups of meta-analyses that are really powerful here. One is the effect size of labelling, taking two kids of the similar kind of background and one you label, one you don't. You get a minus 0.6 effect, which is ginormous. Yeah. And the major reason you get that massive difference is expectations. And it's not right. only the expectations of the teachers in lowering what they expect from certain kids, but the expectations of the student who knows, despite the fact that they're all in the same group, that they are lesser and they perform, therefore, lesser. And so uh, in, in psychology, medicine, engineering, whatever, we use labelling as a first step to intervention. Sadly, in education, we use labelling as an explanation why the student can't. So even in those two examples you gave, the student still knows that's lesser expected of them. The other students know that some kids are going to do better and worse, and there's a lot of negotiation or non-negotiation in those groups. So you still got this invidious problem, even in those two examples, um, of a whole psyche about, and it goes back to your first point, we know who the rich people are, and we treat them differently. And we know who the poor people are, and we have explanations for them, even before we even meet and touch them. So that notion really gets in the way. But let me also add a second meta-analysis to the equation, which I thought was quite fascinating, where they asked, what's the effect size of all the other kids in the classroom when you have kids with major special needs issues in the classroom? And it's positive, 0.18. It's not, not huge, but it's ain't zero, and it's kind of exciting that um, every kid's a winner. So those, my dilemma comes back to the powerful, powerful notion of expectation, even in that, those two examples you gave. Yeah, but doesn't that mean that if you can uh, find strategies to, to make people have high expectations on each other, it will work fine mm -hmm. also in the same classroom. So it's... It's a matter of finding out how, how to do it. And I think the, the examples from David is like excellent examples of cooperative learning strategies, like independent groups, and it works uh, 
quite large part of the days the students manage, but they need to do some other activities as well, I think, to, to manage the day. It's quite intensive to work as a group full days, all days. Huh. Yes, I thoroughly uh, agree with, with your point, John, uh, about expectations. And um, not only expectations coming from others, but expectations coming from the self. And these have to be addressed by, um, I think, uh, teachers, uh, encouragement teachers, um, dismissing uh, stereotypes of children um, who, and dismissing the, uh, the problems with labelling um, that, that can occur. About seven or eight years ago, here at the University of Melbourne, we abolished special education. Uh, we had long discussions about this and you know, that, that jump from the philosophy to the actions and the evidence, etc., and it, it, I have to confess, it did not go down well. Some of the staff were furious, some left. And we also found that the majority of our teacher education students in electives opted not to look at special education. And what we reinvented instead, and we brought Lorraine Graham down and um, asked her to set up a program that was based on learning interventions. And the argument was every student, no matter where they started, needed a learning intervention. And we deliberately used those words because we, we knew that personalized learning, individualized instructions had very, very low effect sizes. And we said, it's more, more of a case management. And sometimes you're working in with others, sometimes you're working by yourself, but every student needs it. And it's been a dramatically powerful and um, successful model. Now, almost, in fact, in fact, indeed, every single one of our teacher education students need it because everybody needs a learning intervention. So that notion of what works with the kids um, that are typically in the special education side works for everyone, but the opposite doesn't occur. And so this notion of getting rid of the labels, getting rid of the whole concept of special education has been a very powerful notion. They're kids. They come with different backgrounds. And like you use the example of the mural, David. I know, for example, I'm, I'm reasonably good in, in statistics and mathematics, but I'm hopeless at painting. So on that occasion... I am the low expectation kid. Mm -hmm. The trouble is we often assume that because a kid's labeled, they're not good in every area. And so this is why we wanted to get away from that whole labeling, that whole low expectation, that message we give to kids, even though our intention as adults is so noble, we don't want to disparage kids in any way. But they pick up the cues. They know who the rich kids are and the poor kids are. And so that notion of, Maybe it's time we abolish the concept of special ed. Maybe it's the time we abolish the concept of inclusion and said, everybody needs a learning intervention. And sometimes that learning intervention is best when we take groups of kids out. Sometimes when we put them in and it just changes the way of the, And you can see I'm grappling here with the problem. The theory is great. The action is not so good. No, I agree. Mm -hmm. should, is... So David, should you abolish special ed? This is your area, so I'm, I'm making a provocative statement here. Well, Italy has, and did that in, from 1971. Yes. They uh, abolished special classes and special schools. They have, I think, about 0.4% of uh, children in uh, special education, mainly because I think they have a physical disability. Now, I think they're the, the most advanced of the countries in that respect. 
But when you look closely at it, and I've been to Italy and done some research there uh, in the past, um, you, you find what you have is a, a group of two or three at the most children with so-called special needs in a regular class with their support teacher. But there it breaks down quite often, not always, but there I think is the vulnerability. What happens in that classroom? And the temptation is to say to the support teacher, you be responsible for those with special needs and mm. I'll look after the rest of them. And that's called, um, I think I like this term, micro-exclusion. So mm. they are included in the classroom, but when it comes to the um, the actual operation of the classroom, you get micro-exclusion. Mm. So we have to find ways, and I think some schools, some teachers have found ways of doing cooperative teaching where we don't have that kind of... Uh, forced separation within the classroom. Um, I'll just point also to, uh, uh, I've forgotten the name of the, the district, but uh, Bengt Person, um, a colleague yeah, in yeah, uh, yeah. Rottenville, um, he reported on a very interesting study in one of the municipalities. You might know the name, Kenneth. And um, that, that municipality a few years ago decided to do away with all special education and go for inclusive education. And I don't know how you are ranked or you rank the municipality's performance, but in education, but it went from this particular municipality performance in education overall improved quite considerably when they moved to that model of inclusive education. So we have got examples where it can be made to work successfully to the benefit of all kids, not just those with uh, mm. so-called special needs. By the way, I prefer the word additional needs rather than special. Yeah. Yeah. David, can I push you a step further? Because you live in New Zealand, and as I understand it, both the uh, elementary primary teachers union and the secondary teachers union late last year came out with a joint policy that the government should ban all kinds of within between class grouping, kind of like Italy. Will it have a positive effect? Yes. <clears throat> well, I think you've done research on streaming, streaming or um, dividing kids according to so-called ability. And um, the research there shows that streaming is not a good idea for either those who are streamed into low classes, low, low ability classes, or to high ability classes. Um, and I think that's what the government is trying to do here, um, addressing streaming. And certainly the, the bottom line of streaming is no, is no kid is a winner. No kid is a winner. And the other, right. the other problem is the equity issue, as certainly the unions in New Zealand have argued, if you walk around many high schools in New Zealand and count the colour, it's, it's an apartheid system, which is not good. The minority kids are always near the bottom. Um, the white and Asian kids near the top. So there's kind of invidious notions there. Um, but And I know what I'm hearing, I think I'm hearing you saying, David, is that uh, abolishing special ed, it may be a way to get somewhere. It's kind of not the answer. Um, the answer comes back to what you said at the beginning about the glove, is how we can find out that every kid, and, and my philosophy, I, I, I say, 
I don't expect every child to become an Einstein or a Madame Curie. That's that's a, a false aim, and it leads to all kinds of invidious policies, thinking that inclusion is equality, which is not what you're saying. It's not what I'm saying. Mm. My argument is that every kid, no matter where they start, no matter what their background is, no matter what they bring to the classroom, they deserve at least a year's growth for a year's progress. Some kids need more. Um, and we need to be more clear about what that year's growth looks like. And I think we can be. And so try to switch it from inclusion should lead to every kid being brilliant to every kid having at least that, that notion of growth. And then ask yeah. what is the best environment to do it? What's the best way to do it? Yes. Yes, it's a tricky question. And also to, to get schools to understand when they are doing some something inclusive in the classroom or when they are doing micro exclusion, as you say, David. Yes. So, so, so yes. you don't have like physical integration instead of inclusion or the inclusive yes. perspective. That's... Yes. Now, there's not been a, a meta-analysis, surprisingly, on teacher aids. But Peter Blatchford's, Rob Weber's work has been pretty um, powerful. Like they've even said that the, the teacher aides have a negative, uh, a zero to negative. In fact, so their comment was they're toxic because they are typically not teachers. They don't have the expertise. Uh, the teachers like them because they uh, allow those kids to be excluded from the rest of the class. And so maybe what I'm hearing you saying, David, is that maybe we should find ways to either use teacher aids more effectively with the non-kids who need the most help. We've tried training them. It hasn't made much of a difference. But that notion, like you're saying in Italy, where they come into the classroom, they have a special person, that's exclusion by another way, isn't it? It is. But it need not be. It need not be. And mm. by the way, those um, people that, that are called support teachers, I think I've forgotten their name, um, they're not teacher aides, they're qualified teachers. And in fact, they have um, additional training beyond their basic training. Um, so we're talking about cooperative teaching. Um, those people in Italy, um, I think skilled enough and, and in many cases are doing cooperative mm. teaching uh, where they don't sim simply divide the kids into um, those who have ability and those who don't. Um, what if you did so another line? I think the whole notion of teacher aids um, is is a pretty doubtful one because you're you're bringing in um, generally those who are minimally qualified um, and perhaps specifically qualified to teach and mind or look after or do something with children with special educational needs. Um, I think I think that needs to be replaced i think it needs but what if to you went a step further david and, and looked at sort of the mtss model and saying that you know we can't afford to have special support teachers in every class with every one of these kids but if we turn the model around um kind of like the rtlb in new zealand the mtss model across the usa where those special support teachers primarily their role was to work with the teachers to upskill yes. them and work with them how to work with these kids in the classroom. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, but I think they should also be in the classroom and work cooperatively yeah. with the yes. teachers. Yeah, yeah that's... With the teacher. yeah. yeah. And I think 
cooperative teaching is a challenge. It's, um, yeah. you know, people uh, who are teachers, they're, they're, they're used to being um, the king or queen in their own domain yeah. um, without any public exposure. Now we're asking them to be, uh, to share their royalty, as it were, and to be open to being observed by others. And that is a challenge. It's a it's a big challenge to um, to adapt to that kind of environment, but a necessary one. Yeah. So if you should try to answer the first question is that it's uh, sort of the concept of inclusion is not a problem at all. It's how to how to do it in the classrooms then. And yes. you need to find ways to have teachers teach all the students. Should then yes. inclusion in schools mean that, uh, like you said, John, that every student have a certain amount of progression every year and mm -hmm. feel feel belonging, of course, feel like being part of a of the group? It's it's it's, it's not <laughs> that easy to sort of define. So it's get concrete and clear for for every teacher and every principal like myself it, yeah, what it, i hear me, you say there kenneth is that yeah. um you, you've now switched <laughs> it appropriately to how the student feels whether they feel like they belong whether they feel like they're respected whether they feel like whether they feel like they're making progress and that i think is a very powerful notion that again inclusion often implies that we are doing things unto the students what is their perception of their involvement their engagement And it's going back to the um, to the egalitarian notion that David started with. Like if when I was brought up in a place actually south of you, David, back in the 1950s, no one told me that because my father was a cobbler, that because we came from the not so rich part of the town, that I couldn't. Whereas today yeah. uh, we would be told in a thousand ways with television, with social media, that right from the beginning, you're lesser. And for many of these kids, they, they learn very quickly that they are different and different doesn't mean different. It means lesser. And so one of the powerful notions of inclusion, I think, Ken, what you're saying is ensuring that the student feels that they can contribute, that they can grow, that they can make a difference regardless. And um, I, I'm not sure, David, how often in inclusion we look at it from the student's point of view. Am I missing something here? Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, we often, I think, tend to look at it through the um, teacher point of view. Um, yeah. I, I think we've got to be more uh, tuned in to our students, our learners, and understand their their world view. Um, to understand you know, their personality, to understand their desires, to understand them as human beings. I think if we do that, and every teacher does that with every child, we, we're on the road to uh, understanding diversity and different needs. Yeah. Mm. So now we're yeah, almost I... answering, yes. I want to raise a slightly different question here. Like we've we've talked about working with these students 
in the regular classroom. And we've had a bit of a focus on sort of collaborative teaching and the, the notion of how you go deeper and make connections. But I want to go to the other side of the equation, and that is how we teach students the concepts and the facts. And I know in many classrooms, we overdo that. In fact, 90% of the classroom, the teacher's talking. It's about the facts. It's about the content. And I take the line that we need both because I'm greedy. Um, one of the trouble with a lot of these kids we're talking about is on that side of the equation. For them, it's a bit of a mystery how the rich people, to use the analogy, go about the process of consolidating learning and overlearning. Like you cannot, you cannot learn everything a teacher says in a lesson. It's just overwhelming. And you know, we, we know we've got small memory space. And for many of these kids, that's the side of the equation that they struggle with the most. How do you know what's important and unimportant? How do you build a coat hanger to tie ideas on? Even before we get to the collaboration, the um, those kinds of notions. And so that side of the equation, memory space, a disinhibition, uh, trying to work out the priorities, that's the area that I struggle with the most uh, in terms of how we can come up with inclusive methods to do this. When we look at, uh, we have about 20,000 hours of classroom transcripts. It's very hard at all across those 20,000 hours to hear an occasion where someone, a teacher or another kid, thinks aloud. So for some kids, learning is an incredible mystery. And I don't know, David, when you got that answer right or when you painted that mural, I don't know what happened in your brain. I don't know what happened up here about how you did that. That's the part that I think we often miss in this discussion is how can we find ways to more effectively teach the kids the ideas and the concepts even before they get to the collaboration? Yeah, that applies to every child, not just those who have so-called special needs or additional needs. That, that's a, a challenge I think that you know, we have to face as uh, educational psychologists, as, um, neurolog as uh, neuroscientists. Yeah, but so if every kid, every kid in the school feels like belonging, that they are part of a group, and they feel like they they are developing, they are learning, and the teachers can see that they are improving, uh, so then we have inclu inclusion or inclusive teaching. Then no matter exactly where the student is, even if the aim is that the student should be in the same classroom when possible. To accomplish that, could that be sort of a description of of inclusion? I think fair enough. Well, I want to question one thing in there. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a thing called inclusive teaching. There's teaching. Yeah, yes, teaching. Um, yeah, I just struggle when we get to the word inclusive teaching. It implies that certain kids, there is a particular kind of teaching called inclusive teaching you need to do. Okay, so say inclusion and just teaching. I, I've just written a thing on a different related concept, differentiation. Yeah. And the argument I'm making there is, again, is differentiation is a way of thinking. It's a mindset. It's not a set of strategies. But so often in that literature, people go to differentiated teaching methods as if certain yeah. kinds of methods are differentiated and others not. It is, how do you know that you're having the appropriate impact on every student? And for some kids, there are different ways 
and different times to get to the conclusion. But that's not what we do often do in differentiation. We have a different notion which says there are different levels of standards and there are different ways kids can or can't get to those different levels of standards. And that's the invidious part. But if you think of it as there are different teaching methods that we may need to use depending on where the kid is, regardless yeah. of the attribute of the kids in terms of how we label them. Um, so I struggle with differentiation in the same way I struggle with inclusion. The minute it goes to a set of activities, I'm lost. I think it's wrong. Yeah, I agree. I don't need to have it's like a method. For, for me, it's sort of a, a perspective, a way of looking at people, and looking at schools. Uh, I don't know. For, for me, it's something that you have sort of inside you, like you have a, an inclusive perspective on the people you work with. And then you must make it happen in reality as well not just want to make it happen you, you need to sort of work towards it and find lots of tools that can help you to to succeed then yes good so I do you think, think we, we have, have to <laughs> to some extent answered uh, the first question i think <laughs> yeah and a lot more uh, but maybe do we need a new name we, we can't uh, call it or can we still call it inclusion talks or should it be added something what do you mean well, so, uh, if we say it, we have a series of talks if we, we're about to end this first talk then it come inclusion talk or some sort of talk number two what would be the title is it still inclusion talks or something else it's still the perspective it's so it can, can still be, or? Well, sometimes in our business, it is repackaging. It is coming up with terms and concepts that move us forward and don't restrict us. And um, you know, we, we've done that in this area of special ed. Uh, over the last 50 years, we've come up with so many labels for these kids, so many ways of doing it. If nothing else, our vocabulary about that is enormous. And I don't mean that cynically. I mean that positively. Maybe you're right, Kenneth. Maybe it is the time. And like what we did here in Melbourne, where we abolished the concept because it became the problem. Um, and we invented a new language, which was learning interventions for all. Um, and I, I just worry that terms like inclusion, differentiation has so many multiple meanings um, that it, it's almost as if we assume when we talk about these words, everyone has the same meaning as us. And I worry particularly that the term means a philosophy, and it also means is, is used as a, a set of, of methods. Yeah. And I think that's where we get into trouble. So maybe the next challenge for you um, in Sweden, Kenneth, and for this program is, can we come up with a better conceptualization, a better way of referring to these notions that doesn't get into the traps that we get at the moment? Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't underestimate the importance of doing that. Yeah, that could be, of course, an, an aim, quite, quite a big challenge but the important challenge. But still, we could have sort of the, the inclusive perspective. So we can still, for now, until we find something even better than call it in inclusion talks. Because it's not yeah, about a method say, or strategy. Call it inclusion philosophy. Inclusion and then how do philosophy we talks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Deal. So let's say thank you for the 
first part of inclusion philosophy talks with <laughs> John Hattie and David Mitchell. See you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.